0: All right, if you would, go with me to Proverbs 21 this morning. Proverbs chapter number 21. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 5. The book of Proverbs chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Let's begin reading there in verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water. He turneth it, whithersoever he will. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. A high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness but of everyone that is hasty only to want. Our subject this morning is that phrase, that expression that's found in verse 2, the Lord pondereth the hearts. The Lord pondereth the hearts. This expression literally means that the Lord weighs man's heart in the balance of righteousness and truth. The Lord weighs man's heart in the balance of righteousness and truth. It means that the Lord considers the heart. He considers the heart from a perspective of a perfect knowledge of man's heart. In other words, he does not consider the heart and ask questions about what the heart Maybe He doesn't ask questions about what the heart might be pondering, what the heart might be considering, but rather he is the one that knows the heart. He has a perfect knowledge of the heart. Not only does he have this perfect knowledge, but he has perfect knowledge of every action that springs from that heart. He fully and perfectly understands the motive, the intent, The deception of what man's heart is at that moment thinking about or actually doing. And he's showing us, in the context of verse number two, the difference between what man thinks and yet what God does. It says that every way of a man is right in his own eyes, man thinks he's right. But more specifically, man thinks his heart is right. He thinks every action that I am taking, everything that I'm doing, even when he arrives at a conclusion, he surmises that whatever conclusion he comes to, that his way is right. But then the writer says, but the father or the Lord pondereth the heart. Man says, I'm right. Man says, this is what my motive is. This is what my heart is thinking about. And God says, but I'm going to weigh that in the balance of righteousness and truth. And that will be the real indication of what your heart is really about. Man believes he's right, even though he fails to often consider that he is still a fallen creature. He is still a sinner. So there is still the possibility and likely probability that even when a believer thinks he or she is right in their own eyes it's still the lord who is balancing in the balances of righteousness and truth what that heart really is about so we see that understanding that solomon being the primary writer of the book of proverbs with a couple of exceptions I believe is writing from a perspective of firsthand knowledge of the Lord pondering his heart. In other words, Solomon had no doubt and no hesitation in believing that God knows the heart. He had no reservations by declaring that truth he had no problem identifying maybe even his own heart as the subject of this first verse. The king's heart, my heart, King Solomon, my heart is in the hand of the Lord. And we'll talk more about this. And he gives a description of how the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Notice the illustration here. He talks about the heart and the hand. He said the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, And it's like the rivers of water, which we'll talk about that in a moment, which he turns. Again, the he there is a reference to God turns. Now, it's not uh, difficult to consider that most every believer here today acknowledges that God is sovereign, that God is the actor, he is the doer of all things, he is accomplishing in his will. We also know that it is God that is acting upon all physical matter. God is acting in a way that is allowing things to continue to grow, to produce, to go where it will. It is by his providential hand that the rivers run the directions that they run, that the mountains have uh, elevations to where they're at the exact point that he declared that they would be. The oceans are as deep as he determined they would be, they are not by any way, shape, or form out of his providence. But he's also at work in the heart of the instinct that an animal expresses. Oftentimes we think of the animal kingdom and we think, well, that animal did that. That animal was acting on God-given instinct. God gave that instinct to that particular creature, that particular animal. He is bending, if you will, the will and the heart of all things to accomplish his purposes. Now again, many people begin to get a little bit nervous because they say, this sounds like God is just forming for himself an army of clones. That's not at all what this means. But yet most would agree that God's purposes are being accomplished certainly in the souls of his people. Uh, We all acknowledge, I believe, God's sovereignty. We acknowledge God's grace in saving us, that had God not turned our heart unto him, we would have never turned our heart by our own free will to him. But are we willing to actually go as far as what Solomon is saying here? Solomon is talking about this providential act that God does this truth that he states before us that man's entire dependence, even the very bent of his heart, is dependent upon the hand of the Lord. This is a way in which God and Solomon being used as the human penman here is showing us that God's hand has an uncontrollable, irresistible sway to turn even the most absolute, hardened, stone-cold wills of man. He turns the king's heart to accomplish his own will. Now Solomon doesn't just mean his own heart, although I do believe Solomon had an experiential knowledge of God's hand turning his heart if you want to see that played out in biblical illustration read the book of ecclesiastes you will see how many times god turned solomon's heart how many times he took the heart of solomon and he turned it to accomplish his purposes so what is solomon writing here he's writing that the king's heart he directs as a responsible agent now don't miss this part he directs man's heart man is responsible for his actions But God turning the the heart of man does not interfere with the moral liberty of that man's will. That's a very deep well that we'll attempt to kind of cover today. Uh, A lot of times people look at the book of Proverbs and they say Proverbs is just a lot of uh, pithy statements. A lot of things that just make us uh, say here's how we ought to live. And that is true. But the book of Proverbs is filled with ways that we ought to live the Christian life. But to denounce it and say the Proverbs does not contain the doctrine of God would be a grand mistake. This is a deep doctrine that Solomon's writing about, and it really sets the stage for the entire chapter of Proverbs 21. So we see here that Solomon now is giving testimony about the power of the king of kings and the power that he has over the heart. Now we know that Revelation 19, 6 declares that the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And so God ultimately, the Lord God reigns. However, God has set up kings. He has set up governments. He has set up rulers. But he also reigns in the heart, and this is key to understanding this morning, he even reigns in the heart of a person or a king whose natural inclination is to mightily oppose the Lord God omnipotent. It would be a grand mistake for us to say that the Lord God only reigns in the heart of the redeemed. No, he actually is also reigning. His hand is on the heart of even the hardest of hearts. And we'll look at at least three biblical illustrations of that this morning. We understand that God was reigning, although there was no acknowledgement of the Lord's hand at work in the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a textbook biblical study of God ruling in the heart of Pharaoh and turning that heart to accomplish his purposes. At the right moment, at the right time, he turned his heart we also have the accounts of two others, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Make note: Pharaoh was before Solomon's time. Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus are after. Nebuchadnezzar, we read, acknowledged the Lord in Daniel 4:37. If you want to turn there, we see that Nebuchadnezzar made an acknowledgment of that. He said, "Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor." The king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Now, this is some evidence, of course, that this king is making a confession of the reality of the king of heaven. Now, it is up for theological debate as to whether or not this is an announcement of a conversion, and we'll just leave that where it is for another study. But there's an acknowledgement in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar of a king of heaven who acknowledges that this king of heaven, all of his works are true, all of his ways are judgment, and those who walk in pride, which is going to be very important in just a moment, he is able to abase. So we see that this king, it is God who turned the heart of this man. And what about Cyrus? Well, we understand a little bit about Cyrus, and we'll study a little bit about his life this morning. But in Isaiah 45, we see the opposite. Cyrus does not acknowledge and is not even led to acknowledge. His heart is not bent to acknowledge there's a God Yet God says, I'm going to use Cyrus to accomplish my purposes. Let's read. begin reading in verse 1 of Isaiah 45. He says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two levied gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. These are reference to Cyrus. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace. And create evil, I the Lord do all these things. A lot of people have wrestled for many, many years with verse 7 of Isaiah 45. And yet, that's what God declares. And yet, Cyrus is going to be used by God, and Cyrus, it says, doesn't even know me. So again, I ask the question does God still reign in the heart? of even an unbelieving king. According to Scripture, he certainly does. Every king in which God exerts his hand upon, every heart will succumb willingly or unwillingly to the movements of God. There is not a king, there is not a heart that is able in its own strength to resist the moving of God's influence upon it. Now, again, many people struggle with this. They say, well, this is a violation. And it's always interesting. That's the way we start off by saying you're violating my will as if your will is your creation. It's not about a violation of your will. The will that you have was given to you by God. The very fact that you desire to know the things of God today is because he has bent your will to know him. That's a beautiful praise to God. There's no violation of any man's will. God at no point ever violated the will of Pharaoh. He never violated the will of Cyrus. He never violated the will of Nebuchadnezzar. And he never violated the will of Solomon. Yet the Bible does declare that it is the hand of the Lord that moves the king's heart. Now back in our text in Proverbs, he uses a very interesting word picture. And this word picture is not by coincidence, but he says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Now this is not just some expression to make us think, well, okay, he's trying to give us a good sermon illustration. No, this is actually an illusion that is being made towards the gardeners of those days, That, unlike you and I, did not have the access that we have to water. They did not have the access to just simply go out and turn on the sprinkler and water the fields. But rather, what they would have to do is find a body of water, and then they would dig a channel to get water to that field. So if they were near a stream or some body of water, they would begin digging, just like we would do as children, did you ever go out and have a have a, a creek bed or a stream and see how far you could divert that water and bring it to a place? And we would do it and, and make it go a number of feet and then just dig and make our own lake. How did the water get there? Well, we diverted the stream. We turned the stream so that it would go the direction we wanted it to go. That's what Solomon is talking about. He's making an allusion to what the farmers would do and the husbandmen to get water from rivers into their fields. In other words, what they're doing is they are turning the course of the river. They're changing its direction. You'll study about the life of Cyrus. You'll understand that when he took Babylon, that's exactly what he did, he changed the direction of the entire Euphrates River. Solomon is using this as an example to show that's how easily, don't miss this, that's how easily God turns the heart of the king. As easily as we could go out and just divert a stream of water and change it to a different direction, that's how easily God changes the heart of the king, no matter how stubborn and no matter how hardened that king's heart is. So, the heart of a king is at the disposal of the Lord. It's turned as easily as a canal can be made or the course of a river. Where does he turn it to? He turns it whithersoever he wills. Now, in order to change the heart of a stubborn man, a sinner, he has to change the entire direction, but he has to change it contrary to its natural nature. The nature of man is rebellion against God and a hardened heart towards the things of God. So, in order for that man's will to be changed, God has to change the direction of that heart. That's exactly what the context here is. So, he, where does he turn it? He turns it whithersoever he will. He turns it contrary to what their plan is, contrary to their schemes, and he turns it to another purpose. He turns it towards his own purpose. He changes the direction of our hearts. He changes the direction of what is, we think is good for us in order to what really is good for us. But they are intended to bring about change that demonstrates his goodness and his glory. In other words, God is not just randomly changing the direction of a heart just so he can say, look what I can do. He's changing the direction of the heart to accomplish whatever his purpose is. So when he changed the heart of Pharaoh, when he changed the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, when he changed the heart of Cyrus, he did it to accomplish his purposes. Some acknowledged him, others had no idea. Cyrus is quoted throughout the New Testament and he's quoted throughout the Old Testament and it says he never even knew God. But yet God changed his heart. So we understand that the first changing of a man's heart is in conversion. And by the way, God created man, so God has the right to change the hearts of whomever he will. He has the right to choose whom he'll leave in their current condition. But he also has the right to change the heart. What does he do when he changes the heart of a sinner? He changes their understanding. He changes their will, he changes their affections. How does Solomon describe it? That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it as easily as a river or a stream of water direction is changed. He said it's that easy. Have you ever tried to change the will of an animal? Some some in the room know exactly what that is. They're stubborn. And we look at them and we say, that animal is stubborn. Do you know that human beings are much more stubborn than even an animal? You're more stubborn than you think you are. It's amazing. We call other people stubborn and we're just as bad. At least I've never met a more stubborn person than that individual over there. Oh, yes, you have. Look in the mirror. Because you are just as stubborn. And you say, no, I'm right in my own eyes. That's the idea here. Your heart will convince you that even in your own sincerity, that you're not like someone else. But he can make our understanding or our darkness light. We saw that in Isaiah 45. I create light, I create darkness. He can make the understanding that we could not see or comprehend before, and he turns it from darkness to light. Praise God, he does take the stubbornness of our sinful will, and he turns it from our own flesh, our own desires, and he makes it willing towards him. That's why we pray, God, make that individual willing to believe. What are we praying for? God, change the direction of their heart. The king's heart, that person's heart is in your hand. Do with it whatsoever you will. Isn't it amazing that when we pray, we often don't pray that way. God, do whatsoever you will. We pray, God, here's what I want you to do. And here's my list of how I want you to accomplish it. And then we sit back and say, I've given God the perfect plan. Is it possible Is it possible that your only way is right in your own eyes, but God is weighing it and saying your your way is actually not right? I mean, how many people pray for sinners that way? God, turn their heart and do with them whatever you will do according to your will, not my will. Sometimes people wrongfully pray, God, violate their free will. Well, that's an improper prayer. But we do understand that this is an influence, a turning, that's invisible. God doesn't put a human hand before us. And maybe this helps our younger kids here today. God doesn't put a hand in front of us and change the heart with a hand we can see. He does this in the invisible moving of his will. But yet it's described to give us a picture of how it happens. Think about the states of affairs and the rulers of many, many kingdoms, how suddenly directions of kingdoms either fell away or changed directions. The king of kings, the Lord himself, directs the hearts of all people. When Paul wrote in Ephesians 1 22 and 23, he declared that the Savior is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He wasn't just saying he's a, he's a figurehead. No, he is the one who is directing, he is the one who is fulfilling his purposes. So we see that he turns it whithersoever he will. Again, back to our text, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Again, this is not the first time that Solomon has used an expression like this. In Proverbs 16, 2, in verse 1, he says, the preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue, listen to this, is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, and here's that theological word again, but... The Lord weigheth the spirits. Now, the expressions are different. But notice he uses the word preparations. The word preparations in verse 1 refers to the things that are being arranged, things that are being planned. And to weigh them, it's, a, it's the same word as what's being used in our text. He weighs the hearts. So what we understand here is that this is perfect language again. It comes from a Latin word which means weight. More specifically, something that is like a pound. Think about the old-fashioned scales that the merchants would use. It's the scales of justice we see in courtrooms. The emblems and the logos. It's it's, to be balanced. How does he balance it? With righteousness and truth. Perfectly balanced. There is no deception in what his judgment is. Every way is right with God. Every way is not right with us, but it is with him. Remember what he said to uh, Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. And again, we can't look at the entire text, but we understand that it does tell us Back in verse 20 of Daniel 5, that about Nebuchadnezzar, it says, When his heart was lifted up and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. He was driven from the sons of men. He says in verse 22, And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart, thou, though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven. He talks about using the vessels for wicked purposes. But then in verse 27, he uses a very interesting word picture. He says, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. It's a reference to your heart has been weighed in the balances and it's found lacking. Again, the Lord not only weighs our actions, But he pronounces a perfect verdict against your heart. Just like in Daniel 5.27, he says, your heart's been weighed and it's found wanting. The wanting, again, is an illustration. Go back to those balances. You try to make the balances level. And what you'd have to keep doing is you'd have to keep adding a weight to make the balances, one would be too heavy and be lower than the other. You'd have to keep adding weight to the one that was higher until you got a balance to it. That's what he's saying. Your heart is still lacking something. Now, here's where the problem comes in. Start making an application here. When we think we're right, we're right. Isn't that true? I mean, how many times have we declared something? It is what it is. This is right. I have pondered this. I have thought about it. I have weighed. The most popular one is I've prayed about it. And we get to the place where we say, I know I'm right. And we're sincere in our declaration that we're right. Of course, when you think you're right, what do you typically do? You set out on a course of action. You have to make a decision. You, you think about it, you pray about it, you consider it, and you say, okay, I'm going to now take this step. You believe in the rightness of it. Do you realize that after all that, you could still be wrong? Do you know how many believers have made terrible decisions trusting their heart? The old Christian cliche, I have peace in my heart about this. That's the worst declaration of rightness that you can possibly say. It's not about peace in your heart. I'm, or I'm settled in this matter. We somehow believe that our motive and our intent, that there can't still be a hidden problem. That there can't still be something wanting in the balances. There are things, folks, you and I, humanly speaking and spiritually speaking in a, in a deeper way, cannot even come to terms with or fathom that your heart could be misled. Jeremiah seventeen nine again, is a verse I understand a lot of times is taken out of context along with the whole purposes of Jeremiah using your, of God's call upon your life. But what Jeremiah actually says in 17.9, he's exactly spot on. What does he say? The heart is deceitful above all things, deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. And Jeremiah asks a rhetorical question. Who can know it? Now what he means is, he doesn't mean that there's nobody that can know it. What he means is, is you can't know it. But the one who ponders the heart does, and that's the Lord. See, he knows the things that we cannot even ponder. We have things in us that we don't even know how to weigh. We think we have exhausted every possible scenario, and yet we find ourselves like he did with Belshazzar and said, you've been weighed in the balances and you're still wanting See, it's our pride that keeps us from admitting that maybe our heart is deceptive in this matter. There have been Christian, entire Christian families who have gone completely off off on their own and have left the church, they've left the things of God because their heart deceived them. I've, I've counseled them myself, I've listened to them use those terms, I have peace in my heart about this. And then I say, but where is the scriptural basis for that choice? And they say, I don't know. I've just prayed about it, and I know this is what God wants. But where is the spiritual directive that this is of God? I don't know, but I have peace. Do you think your heart can give you a false sense of peace? (laughs) That's our problem. We're not willing to admit it. Every man thinks He's right in his own eyes. So, maybe by way of application, if God knows our heart, and even with our best intentions, we may not really even know the hidden motive of our own heart. So, maybe instead of being the one who is always right, maybe it would be wiser for us to constantly submit them to the guidance of the Lord. There are some people you will run into who their entire life purpose is to be right. And they let you know that by their words and by their actions. Sadly, sometimes that's theologically. There's no room to discuss because they're right. I've arrived at this conclusion based upon my thousands of hours of study. Listen, I have to guard my own heart And again, I'm using that term because I can't guard it myself. But I have to be careful to declare something and be so dogmatic about it, saying, I know I'm right. How do you know that? The Lord ponders the heart. So what should it lead us to? It should lead us to a sense of humility. In verse 3, he says that as God, as a result of God pondering the heart's, To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Now this really starts to hit us where we are, if it hasn't already. Because the, the, the writer here, Solomon, is showing us again that a person can fulfill all the requirements, outwardly speaking, of what God requires. But if that person does not do justly, and rightly in their dealings with people then that is totally unacceptable to God it goes back to it has hints of what's happening in Samuel when he talks about that the sacrifice is really of no value if the heart's not right or if you're being uncaring or you're being uncharitable you're dealing with people in an ungodly way but externally you got it all together that's what the verse means. I would, at that point, I would say if we think that we're doing things, one of the, the most stinging accusations about the intents and motives of man's heart is what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 6 when he was talking about don't do certain things. And he's warning in Matthew 6 verse 1, he says, "...take heed or beware that ye do not your alms before men." to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Now what does he mean by that? If your motive to the reason you do good things is in any way, shape, or form to be seen of them, then there is absolutely positively no reward from the Father in heaven. So if your motive is at one time to be seen of people, your heart's not right. Therefore, When thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee. Now, again, Jesus isn't talking randomly. This was the way of the Pharisee. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. That thine alms may be in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret himself, shall reward thee openly. He goes on to talk about even when you pray. You realize you could be in a religious service like this, a worship service, and maybe you get called on to pray. And you could be praying and with even an a hidden motive in your heart, praying with the hope that somebody's impressed with the way you pray. That would be a heart that's not right. The humility that comes as a result of this is Astounding. But even more specifically, in, verse, in chapter 5 of Matthew, Jesus talks about that externals don't matter if you have a problem with a brother or sister. Matthew 5, verse 23, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. I love the picture. He says you're bringing your, your gift to the altar, and while you're there, you remember, wait a minute, I have... A problem between myself and that brother. Leave there thy gift before the altar. In other words, don't even offer. Leave it there, but don't even offer it. Go thy way, first be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer the gift. What's the right order? The offering of the gift, the offering, of the sacrifice, is unacceptable if you have a An issue or a disagreement or you need to be reconciled to your brother see we can get the externals right folks and the heart can still be wrong and then back in our text notice he uses what we're all very familiar with a high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin now there's no two ways about this scripturally pride However it shows itself, whether it shows itself outwardly, inwardly, is hated by God. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Matthew 11:29, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest into your souls. There should be no pride. And yet, a high look and a proud heart, it's the result of one another. The word plowing here is an interesting word and there's a lot of different, a couple of different viewpoints on this, uh, but most commentators came to this agreement that the word plowing here can be understood in two ways. It could be part of the activities of life put to represent the whole as if it was said that every activity of the sinner is sin because he is unrepentant before God. In other words, this is just the, the act of a sinner. Or just as we use the picture that someone plowed right on, regardless, describing a level of insensitivity or just running over people's feelings. Ultimately, there's an agreement that it refers to the hurt which a proud person causes to other people. It's that idea of running rough shot over somebody and without any regard for their feelings. And then finally, let's look quickly at verse five. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness, but of everyone that is hasty only to want. Here you have the word diligent and hasty being contrasted. Hastiness would include what we call, and we would say what? Acting in haste. What does that mean? We act hastily, which means we don't consider it rightly. We don't study it through. We don't weigh it out but it also could simply just mean acting carelessly. Either way, what is the writer saying? It does not achieve what it should achieve. But he gives us this picture, the diligent, those who are careful, those who do consider, don't act hastily. They give time to consider and to think about this situation. A man that is thoughtful and studies, he diligently pursues the truth, right? And what does that lead to? It leads to prosperity, it leads to plenty. That man is usually thinking through things, he's pondering things, he's praying things. He's not quick to come to a solution. Folks, I'm telling you, a lot of what happens in our life is that we just don't want to wait and consider and pray we just want the problem to go away and we make a lot of hasty decisions and we call them spiritual that if we just would have weighed them and get them to the guidance of God we would have gotten our answers. So everyone here that has this desire who is quick acting doesn't think before they act or acts quickly in an affair or matter, they're not giving themselves enough time to allow the Lord to show them the truth. So remember, the Lord pondereth the hearts. He knows the condition, He knows the intents, and He knows the motives of our heart, even when we don't. So I think it's important that we keep that in mind, that the Lord ponders our hearts. He knows them, He changes them, He can take the most stubborn of hearts, change it into his will. He can use people like Cyrus, who don't even know their heart is being turned for the good of his own people. And yet that's what's happening here. So I hope that'll be a help to us. Let's finish by singing the hymn on page number 32. Let's stand together. I think it's